there is a um, pattern that I'm seeing as I'm doing more, well, doing any face-to-face -face coaching work with people. I've not done any face-to-face -face coaching for four years. And then on this trip to America, I've put myself back into it. And I'm seeing people face-to-face. -face. This is for a lot of reasons. Um, not least is, you know, I'm in my own process. Um, I am doing my best to try and be some kind of an example for overcoming codependency, um, which is possibly a misnomer. And I might switch to talking about toxic passivity instead. Um, <clears throat> so when I'm working with people, this is part of my process of dealing with people's problems or hearing about people's problems, providing a space in which a person's problems can be aired and be listened to and understood without taking that person's problems on. And um, lo and behold, I can actually do it, which I'm really happy about. Because there was a period of time there where I couldn't do it. And that's why I stopped coaching face to face. It was actually making me get physically sick. And it doesn't do that now, which is great. I am very lucky in that my client base is based on the coaching that I have done is higher IQ. These people are smart. They're smarter than the average, uh, smarter than the average bear. They're pretty smart cookies. They're tough cookies. And they are in the main, very fluent in the language of psychology, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis to begin with. And so it's been a very interesting experience. It's been a very grounding experience to sit with somebody in the flesh and look into their eyes and to listen to them and to, to work with them like that. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do it, and it has worked from this point of view, is I think that there is a tendency for there to be a gap between map and territory. And if the map that we're operating from has been operated without updates for too long, that map can get stale. And I think my map was getting a little bit stale. So I'm looking forward to doing more face-to-face -face coaching with people and doing more retreats with people. My idea, my map of what people want and where they're up to and where people actually are up to um, was out of date. Actually, people are... are Generally, I'm speaking generally because, you know, there's a lot of subscribers here on YouTube and I don't know where everybody's up to. Some people like might have found me last week. Other people have been listening to what I'm talking about for a couple of years. Um, some people have come from, you know, other places, other people that they've been listening to online for a while. But actually people are further along than I thought they were. And what they're looking for, though they don't think of it this way, what they need and what they're looking for actually seems to be more ideological and philosophical than it is purely psychological. They need psychology. They need psychological help. Anybody who has suffered ongoing um, trauma for a period of time and has developed a CPTSR response needs psychological um, tools to analyze the problem, to discuss the problem, and then psychological tactics to move forward. 
but there is this sense of an ideological vacuum and I've been talking to people about a moral philosophy and how if your father was present and useful in your life one of the things that he should have encouraged in you is a moral philosophy and I see people kind of look at me like they don't really know what, what I'm talking about an idea of your own sense of right and wrong an idea of your own value system an idea of what you think a good life is have you ever asked that have you ever sat and asked what do i think a good life looks like how do i think an adult should behave how do i think we shouldn't behave and there's no implicit moral guidance here i can't offer that it would be wrong for me to offer that and i have no interest particularly in offering it I'm happy to have the conversation but I, there isn't like i'm not a crypto anything i'm very very open so there isn't like aha and by the way i just so happen to have a moral philosophy prefabricated for you i don't you need it but you must construct it it cannot come from me I'm no interest in being uh, any kind of of i wouldn't even say that's a guru's job it's more like a priest's job to give you moral guidance i can't i can't and i won't but i can help you to ask the right questions and the right kind of questions are what do i think life is for how do i think a person should behave what do i think is good behavior what do i think is wrong behavior and you could say well i came here because i thought my ex-boyfriend was narcissistic and i would say i don't think you will ever really recover in a meaningful long-lasting way in a way that protects you from getting into this kind of relationship and again in the future without either developing from scratch some kind of a moral philosophy a philosophy of life that has morality and values built, built into it or totally reviewing your old one and getting rid of it um, Christianity has come up again and again and again in these coaching sessions in discussions with people who, if you ask them, would declare themselves atheists. Um, a couple of times, Islam has come up. And, you know, I think that that kind of makes sense. I think it makes sense that if you're thrown into despair and chaos by a relationship, by a person, that you're going to start wondering which way is up. And you're going to start wondering how to tether yourself in the world. All the psychology and all of the psychological techniques that I can offer you will not make up for a gaping hole where some kind of value system and moral philosophy should be. It's not what psychology is for. Well, it isn't what modern psychology is for. Psychology, historically, was always just a branch of philosophy. But somewhere along the lines, it developed... The old joke is uh, physics envy, like penis envy. Psychology developed physics envy and psychology decided it wanted to be a science, which was probably the worst thing that could have happened to the study of the human mind in the whole of the history of the development of psychology was the drive to be an actual science, not to be scientific, but to be an actual science. Instead of saying where it should have done, which is as a school of philosophy with um, a strong 
um, scientific leaning. You're going to have to know what your life is about. These are questions you must answer. I don't think anybody can really help you overcome anxiety, depression, PTSD, CPTSD, eating disorders, you name a mental health issue without you being able to answer very, very simple but very profound questions about life and your purpose in life. You've got to answer that for yourself. You've got to find meaning. I did, when I first arrived in, uh, in LA, I went to UCLA and I did a seminar on overcoming codependency. I'll have had, by the time I go back to do it again, I'll have had 24 days of um, being with family, of face-to-face -face coaching and of developing the ideas. And it will probably now be called uh, something to do with toxic passivity to take it away from codependency. And to broaden it out from a psychological, individualized problem to a broader socio-cultural problem, which is toxic passivity. We are <clears throat> slow-boiled frogs. And the brine in which we are being boiled is creeping toxic passivity. A great way to encourage people into a state of passivity that is malignant is to thoroughly scrub them clean of any kind of moral philosophy. Another thing that I think is, is missing is a philosophy of competition, a philosophy of competing in the world, a philosophy of asserting yourself, a philosophy of asking for what you want. Sounds strange, like even as I'm saying this now, I'm like, what a weird thing. These, these should be givens, but they're not. They're not givens. Actually, I know very few people who don't go into an altered emotional state when asking for what they want. I'd go so far as to say that the vast majority of humans I know, when they actually ask for what they really want, they kind of go into what we would understand as being in the realm of CPTSD and emotional flashback. So taboo has it become to say, this is who I am. And this is what I want. It's become slowly and insidiously and surreptitiously so taboo to just state who you are, to be who you are without editing and to simply ask for what you want that it induces a kind of panic and then an aggression that is there to mask the panic or a pretend indifference to the outcome of the asking of the question where we cover the vulnerability of not wanting to be refused and hearing the word no by pretending that we didn't want the thing that we wanted in the first place. This is not just an issue of codependency and it's not just an issue of an individual who has been traumatized. This is now a political issue. This is an economic issue. This is a cultural issue which is toxic passivity. This is what we've been indoctrinated into. And it sucks. It really sucks. People are really suffering. And I think um, the world is struggling. One of the things that toxic passivity does is it teaches people covertly and indirectly that they don't have to lean in, that they can afford to lean out if we have a TP, 
and you have six sticks leaning into the middle of a teepee and you throw the canvas over the top, if all six sticks are leaning in, we have a pretty strong structure. If it then gets tied with a nice tight canvas over the six sticks, you have a pretty good teepee that can withstand the wind and the rain. If one of those sticks realizes there are five other sticks here I can lean out, you'll have a slightly less strong teepee. If you have three of the six sticks who decide it's okay, I can lean out, then you have a disastrously weak teepee. If you have only two out of six sticks who are actually bothering to lean in, you don't have a teepee anymore. You have a big wet mess of sticks and canvas. That's all you have. And that's what I think is happening now. I think people are leaning out. I think toxic passivity has entrained us into being idiots who lean out and to act like this world is not our world and there's nothing we can do and so we shouldn't do anything don't take action don't think don't compete lean out and you see that there's like this slow shift to uh, soak people's value system and to disrupt it to soften it and to move it in a certain direction and the direction is towards weakness the direction is towards submission. The direction is towards compliance. And as I said in the first Overcoming Codependency seminar, the ideal between yin and yang is balance. But when you're looking at yin, you can have malignant yin and benign yin. And when you look at yang, you can have malignant yang and benign yang. And what we have is double, triple yin that is malignant, that is self-pitying. <clears throat> that is self-pitying, that is passive, that is the root cause of this disgusting victimhood culture that we see around us now, that is reaction-seeking rather than assertive, that is hopeful rather than brave, and sometimes at the more malignant end of the spectrum is even hysterical and despairing rather than being courageous and forward moving the idea is balance between yin and yang but we also need to be very aware of when either of those attributes has gone sick has rotted and has become toxic and it now has become toxic we are trained now to be seen through robots eyes so we're not trying to capture the male gaze, which presumably, hopefully, would have led to some sort of sexual contact. Now we're being entrained to satisfy the robot's gaze, which can never lead to intimacy, can never lead to sexual contact, and can never lead to love. I haven't done a video on it yet, been meaning to for a while. The shocking passage in 1984 that hasn't received much attention, where O'Brien says to Winston, we will obliterate the orgasm we will destroy sex on a random whim i decided to listen to an old terence mckenna recording the other day and uh, he said he said if they could make sex illegal believe me they would but don't worry they never can i wonder i wonder what kind of a direction we're heading in at the moment where people's um desires, their 
sense of life, their sense of lust, their libidinous drives are being repatterned and are being completely rewired. So I will be talking more against um, toxic passivity, which is another way of describing a true neurotic fawn response, a true neurotic codependent CPTSD response of passive victimhood. Um, I now suspect um, in my own experience and in the experiences of many people that I've been talking to is that way before any individual was attracted into our lives who would have done this or that or the other thing, we'd already set the stage for it by being passive, by not asking for what we wanted, by not having a moral philosophy, by not cultivating a philosophy of competition. I mean, just that on its own, just having a moral philosophy and just being willing to compete and willing to assert yourself and willing to ask for what you want is huge. And if you don't have that, you're very, very weak. There we go, that's 17 minutes and 48 seconds of me going on. If anybody has any questions, now's the time to ask them. Please make them one sentence long and end them with the squiggly symbol, which is a question mark. How's the leg? The leg is improving day by day. I uh, got some more physio and got a better sense of what's going on uh, with the leg. But yeah, it's improving slowly. Remember what I said, though, the knee. If you have problems with your knee, as I do, have had, that's inflexibility and in behavior. So, you know, it's time to be more flexible. It's time to start changing up the way in which, uh, in which I operate and being less stubborn. Starchild asks me a very softball and leading question. Thanks, Starchild. What's the relation between moral philosophy and healthy personal boundaries? Well, I'm glad you asked. You can't have healthy personal boundaries without moral philosophy. Um, this is new to me. I've only realized this recently. So I've stopped teaching people to have boundaries, which without going into a one hour lecture, if you think in a coaching context, if I say you have no boundaries, so let's work on your boundaries, that in a certain sense externalizes your locus of control. However, if we deal with the fact that you don't have boundaries by developing a, um, a healthy value system, and a moral philosophy, your boundaries will show up automatically because you have to have a self to have a value system and a moral philosophy. And if you have a self, if you have a thing to put a wall around, then you don't just have wall with no thing that is precious. You have a precious thing that you would naturally feel inclined to protect. That's you, that's yourself. And the rules by which it is protected the thickness of the walls, the height of the walls, the material they're made of, will be defined precisely by your moral philosophy and your value system. Never again will you doubt what action to take. Never again will you lie awake at night wondering when X said dibbity burr, did he mean dibbity burr or did he mean blabbity blue? You won't wonder that anymore because, you know, it'll just be a simple moral question of moral philosophy. Does this person make me feel confused and upset? If yes, get rid. If no, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, the uh, you can't have one without the other. And in fact, the most elegant way and the most um, strength 
strongest way of developing healthy boundaries would be to develop a decent moral philosophy. Does porn have any useful function? Says Introvextrav. Um, probably. I mean, there's always been, there's there's always been pornographic modes of thought. I mean, porn is not separate to human sexuality. It's and it's not new. Um, I wouldn't. It's probably probably a bit late at night to go down this particular rabbit hole, but um, I know that the narrative of objectification is that objectification is always bad and pornography objectifies. In fact, most erotic material, whether it's pornographic or erotic, objectifies. Over the years, as I've observed myself and people I've been with in intimate situations, I've noticed that objectification seems to be a necessary um, component of human sexuality. So if you, if, you agree or we can say porn is at the extreme end of the spectrum of objectification because it's mechanics like that's what means it's pornography and not ero and not eroticism is it's pure mechanics it's it's the most mechanical robotic non-mysterious elements of human sexuality um we can't go well that's no that's terrible we only want eroticism we only want that which is vague and implicit and mystical. You'd say, well, actually, no, that's not true. You want both. Um, because both men and women, at some point in their in the sexual cycle, if you're going to achieve orgasm, there's always going to be an element of objectification there, and that's okay. So to that was a long-winded answer to your question. Yes, it does serve a useful function. However, if you were to ask me, is it great that everybody has HD streaming pornography of whatever you want immediately accessible through a device in their pockets, I would say based on what I know of the human mind and human behavior, probably not. Um, I was laughing today with uh, a guy who is going for his master's in mathematics and he was my Uber driver. And he's going he's gonna to work his way through and be a maths professor. And we were talking about the education system in America and how things have changed and how the standards have changed and whatever else. And we were talking about the use of social media. And he said, my students want all their notes on, on a phone-readable format. And I said, it's really interesting. Everybody in the last 10 years that I'm doing videos and audios and books for, people predominantly consume my courses through their phones. I mean, it's like 85% not on laptops it's on it's on phones that people are consuming it and he said yeah this is a bad idea for revision and it's a bad idea for testing and for mathematics he said so we give people homework but in order to make it easy we've done it online and all they have to do is open another tab and they can cheat their way through whatever homework we give them so people are kind of doing maths but they're not really practicing their mathematical skills they're practicing their ability to look up solutions and formulas and he said it's also a problem that where they're looking up the solution to mathematical problems that I'm setting them as a teaching assistant um, is exactly where they get films, you know, Netflix, um, conversations with friends and everything else. And I said, yeah, and full HD streaming pornography. And we were laughing about that. I said it would be like going back to the 80s and sending a kid to a room and putting a maths book 
with his maths homework in on top of a huge pile of pornographic magazines, leaving the room and saying, I'm going to give you an hour in here. <laughs> and I hope you do all your maths homework by the time I get back. So, but that's, you could say, is that a porn? So is the point I'm making, is it a pornography issue? Is it a self-discipline issue? Is it a pleasurable stimulus issue? Is it an endorphin? Are we addicted to the endorphins, the serotonin? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, but does it serve a useful function? Yes. I mean, when I take over the United Kingdom and then become the king of Europe, I wouldn't ban it, but I would insist on people having a very, or very, a much more mindful approach to it and just be like, look, men and women are probably over consuming pornographic and, and, and erotic material as a means of self-regulating their emotions and we are generally speaking becoming less intimate with each other and that's not good um, the term sexual autism i first heard being used by chris rock in his last uh, comedy special where he declared that he thought he was a sexual autistic because of too much too much pornography con consumption i think um, everybody is becoming intimacy autistic there is a there is an autism around intimacy people just don't know how to be um, with each other and that's 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 a worrying porn destroys true love says henry but probably within a truly loving relationship you would find within the boundaries of love and sexual intimacy entirely pornographic elements like the most porn like the most porn but it like if you have if you've drawn a circle and you've gone, okay, this is our area of our intimacy. And this a circle within the circle is this is our sexual intimacy. And then the circle within the circle within the circle, these are the bits that are just pure pornography. Then you probably don't have a problem. If your outer circle is made of pornography, then that's, yeah, you can't have, you can't really have loving intimacy within that context. It's, it's not, it's the wrong modality. For the for the task introvex says thank you so much for addressing this for me fascinating points you're very welcome no problem mk says my boyfriend used to read me erotica he's just showing off now you lucky thing um the ancients already knew it was bad says poison squid the ancients knew that overindulgence in physical pleasure the pleasures of the flesh didn't lead to anything good morally so you see that in Christianity, but I recently in the last few years read that a lot of our ideas of like Christian cleanliness and purity and staying away from the pleasures of the flesh, raising the spirit actually came um, from Greek uh, philosophers that preceded them like the Stoics and the Cynics, who much like you would normally associate with Eastern philosophy, uh, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism and uh, followers of, of of hinduism where people would give away their material wealth and then just live almost homeless and and uh, live on arms or, or or beg to show a lack of attachment to the physical world the greeks were big on that there were several schools uh cults initiation uh cults that, that were based on that so yeah there was um there was definitely an idea that's been around for a very long time that the ancients did have hold of that if you were in your let's use different language just to mix it up 
if you were all your energy is in your base chakras um then it's not in the higher chakras it's not in the heart chakra and the ground chakra um it's down down in the base <laughs> down in the basement and it can't be both it can't be both and the more time you're splashing around in the basement the more practiced you are at that so it's, it's not great <laughs> but uh, sorry fly or moth what is that moth um, I don't. I don't demonize it. I would never demonize it. I would never say, "Oh, it's it, it is the problem and it is the source." I mean, it's it's us. It's us. That would be externalizing the locus of control again instead of internalizing it, which is much more responsible. Uh, Angela asks, "We're really sticking on porn here. Um, are those who make porno movies sexually autistic as well?" Maybe. Maybe. I'm sure it takes all sorts of people. Uh, to make um, pornography. There's all different types of pornography. There's all different genres. There's different takes. There's different styles. There's there's like, if you're talking from pornography through to erotica, there's, that's a lot of material. Um, Jason says, I'm getting the moth aroused with the porn talk. Yeah, I think I am. I think it's like flying into my face going, yeah, say more stuff. Um, so, but yeah, there will be some. There will be some and that you could if you wanted to do if you were like a sociologist uh, or, or psychologist with sociological leanings, you could write a dissertation that goes if you look at the way porn is created, it reflects psychological issues. It reflects a kind of um, sexual autism. Um, Slavoj Zizek has, has gone into this. Of course, it would be Slavoj that goes into it. Um, but it's good. I mean, it's 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 good work, and it actually is really insightful, and and it and it makes sense. So, if you guys want to know more about that, I would uh, Google Zizek and uh, pornography, and hopefully you won't find any porn with him in it because I can't help you from the trauma of, of seeing the spectacle. Question: Can you explain what this passivity? Question: Can you explain what this passivity? Question mark. Do you mean what is passivity? Uh, it looks like you got auto-corrected there. Third open 93. Richard, how did you skip over my question, damn it? I don't know if you can see all the other comments are coming through, but there's, there's a lot of questions and comments coming through. Um, question, retoxic passivity. Point taken, but do you not think labeling a person with toxic passivity as problematic? Um, I don't think I would label a person... Um, an individual is saying, oh, you have toxic passivity. I don't know that that would be particularly useful. What I would say to a group of people who identify as being uh, fawn-responding codependents, that a more useful linguistic metaphor for the challenge that we face is possibly not codependency. You've got to remember, codependency is not a clinical term. As far as I know, historically, it's from Alcoholics Anonymous originally. And it meant the enabler, it meant the partner of an alcoholic who would, you know, cover for them, maybe even supply them with alcohol, you know, would, you know, sort them out. So, which is useful and we can see ourselves in that. But maybe if we broaden it out um, to something more than that, we'll get a more nuanced sense. Like if you define a problem with greater nuance, uh, usually defining of the problem presents the solution in and of itself 
So if you define a problem very, very well, the solution kind of uh, pops uh, to the forefront. Uh, it seems like the kind of term like PTSD that the general population might ridicule. I don't think the general population ridicules PTSD. It's not been my experience um, at all. I don't think I've ever told anybody I work with PTSD and had them turn around and say, ha ha, that's ridiculous. Um, and I don't really give a fuck what the general population wants. I mean, the general population in, in my country watches Love Island. The general population in America watches fucking Keeping Up With The Kardashians. Who gives a fuck what the general population think? Um, but it's a good question. I'm glad you've asked it because I tell you this, there hasn't been a coaching session that I've done. I think I did like 20 or 25 right, since coming to America where that specific issue hasn't come up but people are preemptively very worried about the judgment of others and i've sat there and i've been like okay do you understand like that you're a lot smarter than the people you're talking about and the people you're talking about they're not it's not like they've sat there and analyzed the situation to some high level and they have this superior understanding and then they've gone you know and you know what i have concluded after years of analysis, and I've really, really read the data, Sarah is a bitch. And then Sarah's like, they think I'm a, they think I'm a bitch. It's like, why do, why, it doesn't, why do you care? If a three-year-old walks up to you and says, um, pow, pow, and pretends to shoot you with their finger because it's a laser gun and says, I'm an alien from Pluto, you don't internalize that doesn't create an inter, um, an emotional response. Your emotional response is, oh, oh, you, oh, you're an alien from Pluto. Okie dokie, because you're three and you're in, you're in your brain is developing. You're figuring out the world. You can be whatever you want to be. Adults play with, play with. Sometimes will play with your projections of who you're pretending to be in that moment. It's it's harmless. Um, similarly, as an adult. I'm finding like if people are talking about me or saying something about me, I'll just say, well, who, who are you? Perhaps not to them, perhaps just in my head. I'll be like, oh, I'm concerned with what they think. And then I'll go, okay, who, who, who is it that you are concerned with? Number one. And who is concerned? Who? I'll go, well, I am. I'll go, okay. Which part of you is concerned <laughs> with what, you know, so... Then you dr drill down and then start going, do you actually think they have a point? Like if somebody is saying something where you think there might be truth to it, then that's a you problem. That's not a them problem. That's a you problem. If somebody's saying you're kind of a dick when you drink and it gets to you, you need to review whether um, you're a dick when you drink and that's why it's getting to you. Or maybe you should stop drinking or stop being a dick. I don't, I, I really don't know. But other than that, I, would, I just wouldn't worry about it. So yeah, toxic passivity. Gen Pop wants to say I'm an idiot or I've, I don't know. People already do say nasty stuff about me. They've been saying nasty stuff about me online um, since 2006. Like when I started out teaching self-defense online. Like that's what people do on the internet. They say They say mean things. It's not real or it's not real to me. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Toxic passivity is a, uh, is a good, strong, solid term. And it's 
it's going to go it's 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 got legs it's got legs there's a there's a lot that you can go to with that you can there's a lot that you can um express and there's a solution to it which is uh, first of all what is toxic passivity then it would be what is benign passivity what does it mean to be in yin what does it mean to uh and then consciously and fully go, we must, the body is yin and yang, the mind is yin and yang, we need to be in yin, but it better be benign yin. And go, like consciously go all the way in to yin. And similarly, what is yang? And to look at that and go all the way into that, what does it mean to be, what is, to, what is it to be toxically assertive? Is that being a bully? Is it being, uh, a tyrant or, or or whatever it is these are this is something that's worth looking at but we can't and i tell you we won't continue to have nations of toxically passive zombies we won't it has no future my concept has a future these people do not <laughs> there's, there's just no future in this there's no future in passive consumerism there's no future for humanity in um, living through tech and living through social media. That uh, I, can, I can guarantee you. Stegosaurus asks, how about some friends who don't acknowledge my PTSD and depression? How would you recommend dealing with them? I wouldn't, mate. I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to offer a stranger on the internet advice on dealing with their with their friends uh, in in that way i can only really help you um they don't really need dealing with they don't need dealing with the top priority is um is you and if you feel like you're in pain then it's a priority in your life to do some work that relieves that pain not to convince people of your truth or or, or your reality or whatever else i mean it's it's very, very tough uh, to do that, and I've never seen it. I've, I've never seen it work, and it usually leads to a bad place, but you um, internalizing that locus of control and you dealing with you, that, that can lead to a good place. Poison Squid asks, does everything that's happening seem planned? I don't know what you mean. Do you mean like in a conspiracy theory type way or in, a, in an Islamic way? Like it was already written by the hand of the Almighty before we were even born. Um, if you let me know, I'll, I'll try and answer that. Is toxic passivity rooted in helplessness, learned helplessness? Um, I think it is, and if if we're talking about toxic passivity that is entrained into populations at a cultural level then it's the exploitation of a human weakness, a human vulnerable frailty, let's say, let's not use the word weakness, a human frailty, a human vulnerability, which is in the face of um, shock, trauma and overwhelm. One of our responses is to become passive, is to freeze or to fawn. The other ones are to run away from it or to fight it, to try and kill it. Um, so, yeah, if it's if it's a deliberate um, effort, then 
the toxic passivity can be caused by shocking somebody and traumatizing them and then telling them, listen, there's a solution here, but y you can't have it. You don't have the solution. Your solution is to buy more stuff. Your solution is to try and acquire more likes on social media. Your solution is to, I don't know, buy a bigger house or buy a bigger car. Don't actually try to solve the problem because if I, as your king, have a nation of people with no problems, they will start to revolt, they will begin to riot, they will demand that I do my job and that my ministers do their jobs better. They will not consume, they will not give me as much tax revenue, they will ask me difficult questions when I'm trying to do naughty wars in faraway places, stealing other people's shit. Um, at the level of psychology, uh, toxic passivity would probably be formed in much the same way by a tyrannical primary caregiver who uses shame, guilt, violence or fear to um, bully um, the desired response from a child because they're too lazy or too stupid to do it in any other way. And uh, yes, that would then form into learned helplessness if you couldn't escape, but it's not the, the root root of toxic passivity would be one step before it be rooted in uh, in pain in trauma that's a better way to phrase it sometimes all i do is find good phrasing is social media given to us to control the social hierarchy and in a way controlling the individual by controlling the group um yes and yes be the shortest answer i could give to that yes and yes i think so i think you're right please discuss ruminating um I'd be more interested in discussing dissociation and I'd be more interested in discussing dissociation as an emotional flashback. I should do a separate video on this. A lot of people I've spoken to recently are confused about what emotional flashbacks are. So I'll give you an explanation of emotional flashbacks and I'll be like, blah, 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 blah. emotional flashbacks, blah, 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 blah. Right, now we need to move on. Has everybody understood what an emotional flashback is? Well, you can't, like the format of this is YouTube or if you buy one of my courses, a video where it's one way, so you can't even put your hand up and go, actually, dude, I still don't really fucking understand this. When I first got hold of it, when I first got hold of the Pete, Pete Walker book, it was answering uh, like 20, uh, there was 20 lingering questions I had that answered all of them. So I was prepped for the material. I was ready. I devoured that book and I was like, thank you. That was amazing. Uh, but, for a lot of people, I think some of the concepts are quite difficult and emotional flashbacks is, is quite misunderstood. Um, probably because of what we would normally understand the flashback to be, usually in a PTSD or in a drug context. So if I say this guy is having, or this girl is having an acid flashback, or this person is having a flashback to their time in a combat zone because of films, because of books, because of the way we talk about it, you instantly know what it is. Emotional flashbacks can go on for days, weeks, years. You can have a cascading series of emotional flashbacks. There are human beings who live in, not they wouldn't just live in one emotional flashback, but they're permanently in a state of uh, emotional flashback. And disassociation, or you know, some people say ruminating, ruminating tends to be a looping 
mode of thinking that is negative that doesn't really lead anywhere good and usually is flavored with a bit of catastrophizing as well i would think of that as dissociation because the solution to the problem is boiled uh, is baked into the cake so if you talk if somebody says rumination i'll go ah dissociation dissociation is emotional flashback so you experience stress a, tr- a stressor or a trigger and then you go into an emotional flashback, but your predominant response to stress in an emotional flashback is dissociation. So I've had conversa- I've had multiple conversations with people recently where they'll go, oh, you're saying that the way that I go into a loop in my head, that's the emotional flashback. And I'm like, well, it's your way of coping with the emotional flashback. And it's so in- intrinsically entwined with the emotional flashback that, yeah, it kind of is. So when you're ruminating, think of it as dissociating because you're not present if you're ruminating. Go, oh, I'm dissociating. I must be in an emotional flashback. It must be time for me to work on my emotional flashbacks and my emotional literacy. Look for the source. Look for the trigger. Look for the stressor or just see if you're tired. You know, you might just be tired and that can be that could be your trigger is physical tiredness. Um, you know, we, we never really know, but... This thing of emotional flashbacks. I've just gone, does everybody get this? Yeah, do you get that? Right. Because now we have another 20 things to talk about. Let's go. And I think, I think I've think i not really given enough time to sort of go into, okay, let's talk about what these, what these things are. And it leads to a lot of confusion because people are then talking about the subject and thinking about the subject in a way that fires you in funny directions. You know, like the old golf thing? Like with a big golf swing, like if you get it slightly, slightly off here and you're driving down the big green tunnel, whatever, I didn't play golf. That tiny mistake up here, once it's driven right the way down the field, the court, the fairway, uh, it's a big mistake. The further away the ball gets, the bigger the mistake is. The more time there is, the more energy there is, the 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 broader the mistake gets. So we need to have a, a quite a, a nuanced understanding of emotional flashbacks. I think ruminating is an emotional flashback just because you're not smashing your phone up, raging in floods of tears or, or reliving a traumatic event per se doesn't mean that you're not in a, an emotional flashback. By the way, every single client I saw um, and... Uh, yeah, I, every, this, this is without exception. And I told all the clients I saw this, all of them would have benefited um, from working more on stopping their emotional flashbacks. But some of the people I was talking to didn't think they had emotional flashbacks. And I was like, You're, you, you think you have CPTSD though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I dealt with my emotional flashbacks. And I'm looking at them going, you haven't dealt with your emotional flashbacks. How do you know? You're flashbacking now. The fact that you're sat here talking to me is so much pressure for you that it's triggered an emotional flashback as soon as you walk through the door. They'll go, how do you know? I'm like, it's not subtle. It's it's not hard to see. If you are struggling with CPTSD, if you're struggling to overcome codependency or toxic passivity, please start with the basics. Please don't skip ahead. Um, I, I mean it. Nobody I saw and... 40 to 50%, no, no, 50% of the people that I saw for coaching work in mental health. 
Uh, some of them are quite high levels. They're actually, they themselves are... It's bloody midnight. Uh, psychologically very, very uh, fluent. Um, some academics, some are therapists, um, but the emotional flashbacks were really, really strong. So please, please, please go back to your basics. You don't have to do my stop emotional flashback course. You can do it because it's free and it's pretty extensive. It's pretty good. Um, you don't have to do my one, but you do need to do somebody's emotional flashback course. You've got to reduce your emotional flashbacks. It really screws with your perceptions. It really screws with your decision-making. It really screw, screws with your physiology. It, it makes a big mess. So please, please, please take the emotional flashbacks seriously and reduce them. Here we go. If you spend a week just working on your emotional flashbacks from Saturday to Saturday and you journal your progress and you know you write a journal of how you feel every day, blah, blah, blah. If on day seven you're ruminating less than on day one, it will prove my point that your rumination was actually an emotional flashback the whole time. JK says, if only emotional flashbacks had a huge warning horn like that. <laughs> I'm, uh, I too am reading The Tao of Fully Feeling, says Standrew. I don't think I read all that. I think I read like portions of it. Um, I loved it. I really, really liked The Tao of Fully Feeling. I've, I've spoken a lot about Pete Walker's book, CPTSD from surviving to thriving. Um, if you manage to get through that, you really should try the Tao of Fully Feeling. Do you have dates for UCLA yet? The most likely is going to be next Saturday, a week on Saturday. Um, but I have to speak to them in the morning. Once I've spoken to them in the morning, I'll do a uh, a newsletter and I'll let, I'll let everybody know. I um, went uh, to the, there's a, there was like a Cisco funded concert last night in uh, San Diego of Weezer and the Foo Fighters, um, neither of whom I would have had massive amounts of, of interest in seeing a, a friend of a friend uh, got me into it. And uh, I was really, really impressed, both of them. Really, really, really impressed with both bands. Still clearly love playing, still clearly love entertaining people and uh, just really enjoy doing what they're doing. And um, it was it was nice to see people just, you know, in the moment, having a good time, doing what they obviously experience as being what they're here to do. And uh, on the planet, I mean, in a woo way, this is this is clearly what they feel they're here to do. And obviously it is, it makes, it makes them happy and it makes the people around them happy, um, which is a good indication, right? If it makes you happy and it makes the people around you happy, that's probably what it is that you should be doing. Um, and, and I kind of feel the same way, you know, I feel the same way. Um, like this is, this is not, this is not all, this is not all I want to do. This is not the only thing I can do. Um, but as something, something that I can do, that I can work through with people, it is, um, it feels like a, a good thing. It feels like a really, really good thing. It's a nice challenge as well. I play songs by both those bands in the band I play in. They did some good covers. Weezer did Take On Me by Aha, which was brilliant. It, and he was he was having the time of his life. He was camping it up. It was great. And um, Foo Fighters did uh, Under Pressure. The drummer went to the front and sang, and Dave Grohl went and drummed for Under Pressure. It was really, really good. Really, really nice to see.
Okay, I'm going to take one more uh, question and then I am going to go to the yin place and do some sleeping. Dave Grohl is an absolute nutter. He is. God, he's a total psycho. It's fantastic. Fantastic to watch him just play out. Um, I, I think I think there's probably a lot to be said. There's probably a lot of crossover between stand-up comics and uh, you know people who do live performances like that with the fight for and response. And it's like this perfect healthy expression of it uh, but yeah he's he was he was really really energized it was a corporate gig you know it was a corporate gig it was like for thousands and thousands of people it was in the whatever the uh baseball stadium is i think it's the padres here in san diego um but it's a corporate gig you know they're gonna get paid whatever they do and both those bands turned up and just did the very very best they could it was it was great robert s says take my question about glowing people all right, I will ask you a question about glowing people. Do you have any tips to be more articulate? Asks Brian Wood. Uh, do you think I'm articulate? How is that question helpful? I was going to go, well, if you think I'm articulate, this is, this is how I do it. And then I was like, I can't articulate how to be articulate. So I led myself into a dead end. What do you think it means when someone glows... Wow, that was a worthwhile question. <laughs> it means um, means their chakras are aligned, man, or they've been cleaning Chernobyl. Um, well, being up articulate, read, uh, learn words, love language, enjoy language. Um, I was raised in an environment where we read. A lot of plays. I did a lot of plays growing up, so I've done a bit of acting. Um, yeah, just love the language and, and love to speak and enjoy communicating with people. And you'll probably find yourself leaning towards being a little bit more, a little bit more articulate. Somebody's getting their comments deleted. Learn one new word a day forever. That's a good idea. Adrian Kneebone says, question. Robert S says, it was worthwhile to me, lol. Well, glad I could make you happy. <laughs> Linny asks about the glowing person. Is it someone in a high vis? Jason says, I used to video produce for Live Nation. I had to video produce Van Halen back in 2015. David Lee Roth was super nice to us. That's cool. That's really, really nice. It's nice when you meet these people and, and, uh, and they're cool. I am... Uh, um, especially in, in recent years, I've more opportunity to work uh, with, I've worked with, oh, I have worked with a couple of, of big musicians actually, um, and some actors and, and that, and athletes. Generally speaking, most people are cool. Most people are just, they're just people just dead down to earth, just looking for a solution to a problem. Um, and it's nice, that's really, really nice. But they don't have to be, I guess. So it is. It is nice when when they are pleasant because they're multi millionaires and they're super famous and they could be total decks and we'd all still work with them anyway. <laughs> all right, guys. Um, thank you very much for your questions. Thanks for listening. Um, I hope that that was useful. Um, I'm going to sleep, and uh, yeah. Thanks for your time and for your attention. Make sure you spend your time and attention wisely, and uh, look forward to speaking to you again soon. Cheers.